support for Inquisitive comes from lynda.com and Squarespace. From Relay FM, welcome back to Inquisitive Behind the App. I'm Mike Hurley. If you've not yet heard our previous episodes in this series, you should. Go to relay.fm slash inquisitive to check them out. Last time, we took a look at the App Store industry that Apple created and explored the idea of the App Store as a department store, with developers inside leasing a space for their opportunity to showcase their products to the world. That lease, however, costs 30%. 30% of your revenue. That's what goes to Apple. It's their cut. Today, I want to look at that in a little more detail. We're going to understand how developers feel about the revenue split and also investigate how the pricing of apps has changed over time. Over the last eight years, the average selling price for apps has decreased and the introduction of in-app purchases marked a huge change in the way that apps are sold and developers make money. As a developer, generating revenue from the sale of your app is how you do business. It's how you make a living. Let's take a look into how that works. For Apple in 2015, it's undeniable that they are generating profit from the App Store. At the time of recording, Apple's earnings for the first quarter of 2015 showed that the services category, which contained the iTunes and App Store business, generated $4.8 billion of revenue for that quarter, with Apple stating that this was a record performance for the App Store. It's clear to see that even without Apple breaking this out fully into each component part to show you how much the App Store made, or the iTunes Store made, or the iBook Store made, It's clear that the App Store must be generating some serious revenue. These numbers alone would be those of a huge business in and of itself. But what is still unclear is what Apple's true motivations are for their cut of the App Store. Do they see it as a way to make money? Or do they see it as a way to try and help their hardware sales? They have a great software platform and they make it secure and they make it easy for developers to distribute their apps. Do they do this just so they sell more iPhones and more iPads? This digital department store metaphor that I've used is very different from how apps used to be sold before there was an app store. You don't get into the app store for free. There's a price of admission. For the sale of every app, Apple takes 30% and developers take 70%. In exchange for this, Apple handles the credit card fees, distribution, hosting of the app file for download, and also gives a storefront with potential marketing abilities. This is very different to how applications and software were sold before the App Store. There wasn't any of this. You either put it into retail or you dealt with these things on your own. To many, this kind of arrangement was new, and on the face of it, it seemed like a pretty sweet way to get rid of a lot of the painful stuff that you just don't want to have to deal with. Um, I didn't do the math on that. So at the time, <laughs> I didn't think it was that much money. Uh, I thought, well, sure, why not? 30%. You know, I, I get, and you know, I bought into all the Apple Kool-Aid, like, well, they're hosting the files, they're doing the credit card processing. That was Marco Arment, developer of Instapaper and Overcast. He had a feeling that many people new to this kind of arrangement also had at the time. Russell Ivanovich of Shifty Jelly felt the same. Uh, my initial reaction was that it was yeah perfectly reasonable. Like uh, we'd we'd actually tried to do some mobile development before that, but you know you had to go through the carrier and you had to go through the manufacturer, and you'd be lucky to get anywhere near thirty percent. So back then it seemed like a really cool deal. You know, exclusive access to 
all these new people with iPhones and Apple only took 30%. But eight years on, how do people feel about this? Do they feel they're getting their money's worth from Apple? Do they feel like Apple's living up to their side of the bargain? Or is it just painful to see that chunk of money disappear? There's two ways you can look at it. You can look at it in the way that there is no other way onto the iPhone. So if it's 30% or nothing, then yeah, of course, I'll, I'll happily take 30%. But if you look at all the things Apple do for that 30%, I think it's a little bit disproportionate these days, especially in an app store with, I don't know how many millions of, of apps that, that are in there now, but you don't get a, a lot of promotion from them. You don't get any value from you know being in a storefront. You're just in a, in a place with millions of other apps. So the, the only real benefit you know, they give you is, is hosting and downloading and payment uh, processing. And I don't think any of that is really worth the 30% that they charge. I think the, the biggest change was, I guess, expectations. When we first started, we had the expectation of making no money whatsoever. So taking 30% of nothing seemed perfectly reasonable. And um, I guess as we've grown uh, as a company as well, you, you know, in the early days, we put our app into the store. It went straight to number one just because it was in the storefront of you know only 300 apps and that seemed like a really cool deal you know apple's going to put you on the front page of this virtual storefront that millions of people are going to see and that was a good deal but these days you know you submit an app you go through the pain of of app review and everything else and then your app just disappears you know it's it's down to you now to do all the the marketing and promotion and i I guess the difference is we now feel we're big enough and well known enough to do all that marketing and promotion so we don't see the value in that side of things. So if, if all that's left is, is payment processing and hosting, they're, they're things we know how to do as well and that a lot of other companies will, you know, will do much cheaper. So I guess that's the main difference. You know, it's not so egregious that we're going to throw our hands up in the air and try and get around it, but it, is, it does seem a little bit too high. And Matt Bischoff, developer at Lickability, has seen opinions of this at a very high-level business. I do think it's... Still fair, but it's it's a little bit tricky in in some in some for some businesses to make it work with that thirty percent. Especially one of my former companies, the New York Times, not my company. I worked there, but for them, it seemed like a lot of people in the product organization there were really really concerned about this thirty percent, um, and and they were concerned about the future of the company based on this thirty percent being taken from them by Apple on every single subscription and recurring. Not, so it's not just app sales anymore. It's then they added a net purchase and they added recurring subscriptions and they're taking 30% of all of that. But prolific app developer David Smith still feels more positive about all of this. I would rather have 70% of something than 0% of or 100% of nothing. It's not like if that's the price that Apple wants to to say is the barrier for putting your stuff in their store. Like, I mean, sure, it'd be great if it was lower. But the reality is the opportunity that they provide by allowing me access to their store in general um, is so is dwarfs any kind of concerns I have about the actual percentage. Um, you know, if I it's I mean it obviously doesn't really scale, but if I think about like if I was trying to sell something in a brick and mortar store, or you know, I'm sure the the cuts there are much higher. The reality too is that it's very unlikely that the difference between say say the cut was twenty percent rather than thirty percent or ten percent even. Like it's unlikely that that percentage difference is going to be making or breaking my business. Now, obviously, if you know if my business was existing right on the, you know, on the edge of solvency, then obviously that would make a big difference. But if that's where my business is sitting, right on that edge, I'm struggling anyway. I, it, it, that extra little, that extra percentage cut is probably not my biggest concern. 
This episode is brought to you by lynda.com, the online learning platform of over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, visit lynda.com slash inquisitive. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash inquisitive. Lynda.com is for problem solvers, for the curious, for people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master Excel, learn negotiation tactics, build a website, or boost your Photoshop skills. Go to lynda.com and feed your curious mind. Whilst browsing around lynda.com, I have come across some incredible courses. Like, for example, maybe you want to learn a little bit about typography or the foundations of color as you're really interested in design. Maybe you want to get up and running with IFTTT and see how you can use automation to make your technology life that little more interesting. These are some of the incredible courses that you're able to get a handle on at lynda.com. These are all taught by experts who are really passionate about teaching. You can stream these courses and thousands more on demand, allowing you to learn at your own schedule and at your own pace. You can even watch them on your Android or iOS device on the go too. You can create and save playlists that you're able to share with others and you're able to follow along with each video with their great transcripts. Your Lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics all for one flat rate. Whether you're looking to become an industry expert, you're passionate about a hobby, or you just want to learn something new, I want you to visit Lynda.com inquisitive to sign up for your free 10-day trial. Thank you so much to Lynda.com for supporting this show and all of RelayFM. When the App Store launched, you had a couple of choices for how you would price your app. It would either be free, or you'd have a one-time upfront payment of an amount that you set for your customer. Before the App Store, people were very used to paying in the region of $40 to $100 for a piece of software on the Mac, or on the PC, or for a video game. Because of this, in the run-up to the App Store being launched, many developers had very different expectations of what they would be pricing their apps at compared to what we see them priced at today. In March of 2008, when Apple unveiled their software development kit so people could start developing for the iPhone platform, they had Sega join them on stage to show off some levels of Super Monkey Ball, a game that they had started to develop for the iPhone. In June of 2008, at Apple's developer conference, WWDC, they showed off a final version of the game and announced that it would be available on day one of the App Store for $9.99. And I remember I thought, that's low. Because <laughs> at the time, like, I, I was thinking it would be more like Mac shareware, which is most things would cost like 20 30 bucks, you know, like, and and in mobile software, that's how things were in the past. Like, I used to have a Palm Pilot back in the day, and... Palm software would cost between, you know, 10 and 30 bucks usually, depending on what it was. The low price, like the, it seemed like, like when there was that keynote right before it opened, um, nothing was above $10. And I remember noticing that, and that's why I priced Instant Paper at $10. I, I was going to price it at about 20 but this seems like the most, like, like they're setting this cap of perception that nothing's going to be really above $10 if, if all of these big name apps are $10. Sega's most recent version of Super Monkey Ball is a free game that has in-app purchases to buy power-ups that help you complete trickier levels. Quite a change. As time has gone on, average prices for popular apps and games has decreased. Referred to as the race for the bottom, the trend has seen the average price of apps get cheaper and cheaper as people try to attract a larger customer base. 
The interesting effect of this is that even just a small set of people doing this will affect the whole market. People need to be competitive, and if your competition is selling their app for half the price that you are, then there are some really tough decisions that you need to think about making. You may remember Guy English's story from last week, in which he saw Tapulous make a huge splash in the market when the App Store launched. Guy has had the exposure of what it's like to be extremely successful in the App Store, and he's also seen how it's changed. Can anybody make millions now? No. No, I don't think anybody should expect to. I think it's a bad idea to start a business with the idea that you're going to make millions right off the bat. I, I often think that that's what people who don't really know the industry believe when they come to you with a good idea and it just needs to be implemented. I, I think they're thinking of the millions. And you shouldn't be. You should be thinking about building a business and, and building a piece of software that people use and, and need. You know, I, I, I do still think that we're in a gold rush mentality when it comes to the App Store on iOS. There's some outliers, for sure. Um, but those are the exceptions. And, and I think chasing that is, I don't know, it's like waking up in the morning and buying a lotto ticket rather than going to work. I, you know. Every now and then, it may work for somebody, but uh, it's, you know, it's not a good plan. If we go back to what I was talking about earlier, we know that people are used to paying higher prices on the Mac. For software that you buy before the App Store, you'd be paying a much higher price, as we said, maybe between $40 to $100. That was kind of standard, and you'd typically be able to install it on one computer for that money. However, the iOS App Store has also had an effect on the way that people now think about desktop software as well as mobile software. In general, app prices on all platforms are coming down, and this is clearly evident in the Mac App Store. There are many apps and utilities that sell for just a couple of dollars or less. Before the iOS App Store, this was just not a price point that you were used to seeing. I mean, heck, Instapaper Pro sold for $10 for, for at least one year, I think. Maybe two, I think at least one. And uh, it, was, it sold very well at $10. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. You know, looking back on it, 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 it seems crazy. And especially given how you know how basic of an app it was, but they all were. I mean, at that time, like apps weren't that good. UI kit wasn't that good. The phones weren't that good. Like they couldn't do that much. So you could make something pretty basic and put a price on it. And there weren't twenty other free versions of the exact same thing. Like <laughs> you could just put it out there. Chances are, you'd be one of the only ones, or the only one, and you could make a decent living just because you were there early. Apple themselves have also helped set this precedent. When the iPad was released in 2010, Apple unveiled the iWork suite of apps for the iPad. These later came to the iPhone too. Apple set the prices for these three apps, Pages, Numbers, and Keynote, at $10 each. A year later, Apple unveiled GarageBand and iMovie, selling those for $5 each. Today, all of those apps are free. iOS 3 brought with it the introduction of in-app purchase in June of 2009. However, at first you could only offer them for paid apps. The ability to have in-app purchases in free apps didn't come until October of that year. In-app purchases have led to a new trend of many, many free games that have some form of consumable in-app purchase. These can be to buy items in-game, to buy power-ups, or to advance or break time limits that the game makers enforce. These games are incredibly popular and seem to be incredibly addictive also, with many people spending inordinate amounts of money to build their city or upgrade their army. 
Earlier on, Guy was talking about how much harder it is to be a millionaire on the App Store today. To a point, that's true. It's much harder to come from nowhere, charge $5 for your app, and watch the money pour in. Success isn't guaranteed, but there are still millions to be made. Figures taken from thinkgaming.com show that the most popular of these free-to-play games are making incredibly large sums of money from these consumable in-app purchases. For example, at the time of recording, the game Clash of Clans is currently bringing in over $1.6 million a day. And this is not an isolated thing. The next two in the list, Game of War and Candy Crush Soda Saga, are both generating over $1 million a day also. And then it goes down with multiple apps generating hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. The introduction of in-app purchases, along with a general trend of decreasing app prices, has led to many developers seeking different pricing models, experimenting with new and inventive ways on how to make money. Patrick and Oshin of Supertop are great examples of how indie developers are experimenting with in-app purchases to help generate revenue in a positive way. For their app, Unread, which is an RSS reader for iPhone and iPad, they have experimented with two different types of in-app purchases. The first is that they now offer a pay-what-you-want type model. The app is free to download, but has limits on how many articles you can read. If you want to unlock all of the features, you have the choice of three different tiers of which to pay. They have a discount price at $3.99, the regular price at $4.99, and the Indie App Hero price at $12.99. You don't get any additional features on any of these tiers. It's purely a model to give you the choice to pay and support developers however you want. Before, the average selling price was like, or the app was $5 on the store, so we got whatever... 70% of that is. Yeah, $3.50. And after launch, that average was much higher. So I think it was like we were making $4 a copy on average instead of three fifty. So even though we added a discount tier where you could pay a dollar less than it used to cost, the amount of money that we make on average went up. So that I think that was the overall goal with this. And that seems to have worked okay. The other thing that Oshin and Padraig are doing is allowing users to tip them. You can choose to add a tip on when you purchase one of the tiers to unlock features, but you can also tip them at any time in the settings screen of the app. So far, tipping separate from the actual purchase, you've already unlocked it, and now it's two weeks later, and now you go and tip. That doesn't happen very much. We, we don't make much money off that anymore. I think we always expected that that would get more activity once we started pushing out actual feature updates, um, which feeds back into our, our plan for Unread over the, next, over the coming months is to, to have monthly updates where each month we're releasing new features. Um, and that's part of the curiosity there is to see if as we are releasing those new features, does that sense of like a token of gratitude, does that tip in that regard start getting bigger? From the outside, the department store that is the app store still looks the same. If anything, it has received a fresh coat of paint over the years, and there are still huge companies inside that sell their products. But the big change is that they are now selling these products at dollar store prices, not at department store prices. But the current market is not all doom, gloom, and questionable purchases. There are some indications that it is possible to make good money on the App Store as an independent developer making apps in the more traditional sense. 
Marco Arment recently released his earnings for Overcast, divulging that he is currently making $15,684 a month on average. This money is generated by a one-time in-app purchase that Marco has in Overcast. The app is free, but it has some limits to some of the functionality that's within the app. For, for a one-time payment of $5, you can unlock all of Overcast's features. It certainly seems like Marco's pricing experiment has worked out well for him. I think that Marco sums this up best in his conclusion to the post. Overall, I'm very satisfied with Overcast's finances so far, he says. It's not setting the world on fire, but it's making good money. For most people, the App Store won't be a lottery windfall, but making a decent living is within reach for many. This show is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code QUESTION at checkout. Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. If you're a person that wants to put something on the internet or you're a person that already puts things on the internet, you should be checking out Squarespace if you haven't already. They give you absolutely all of the tools that you need to make a really powerful professional website. We could be talking about a blog, or maybe a portfolio, or a store. They have really clean, stunning templates, and they've added even more with Squarespace 7 that look good on every single device as they all feature responsive web design. They have stuff like their cover page. Cover pages are a really cool feature that allow you to create single-page websites with all of the power of a full Squarespace site. They've partnered with Getty Images to provide you with a great deal on fantastic photography at just $10 an image. Squarespace have 24-7 customer support with live chat and email. Uh, they have their commerce platform, which allows anyone to add a store to their Squarespace site. I love Squarespace. I've used them for years, and I recommend them to anyone that is looking at starting a website. So you can sign up for a free trial with no credit card required and start building your website today by going to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up, make sure to use the offer code QUESTION to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for Inquisitive. Squarespace plans start at just $8 a month, and you'll get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Thanks so much to Squarespace for the support of this show and Relay FM. Squarespace, start Start here, go anywhere. The App Store is a thriving market. Every category is full and growing every day. But is it enough to have just one store, just one platform to build a business from? Russell Ivanovich has already had some really positive experiences with developing apps for Android, and they seem really out of place for what the Apple development community tends to believe about how you can make money on the other platform. This probably started in, in 2012. That was the release of Pocket Cast 4 for Android. And I guess the, the point it really tipped over was about six months later. So what, what we're used to on iOS and what you see in a lot of graphs is you have a massive sales spike. And then things kind of tail off. And then what you have to do is keep releasing updates, you know, new versions, keep keep the hype going so you can hopefully get a few more spikes and then you get kind of like a a resting sort of amount. And that seems to be fairly consistent. You know, I don't I'm not a mathematician or a statistician, but it seems to be a consistent thing like across all apps. But what we were seeing on Android is that uh sales were just on a, a slow uptick. You know, every week the sales would be slightly higher than the previous week, and that line just continuously trended upwards and after it trended upwards for for a good six months i think that's when when our attitude changed is when we saw that this was a, a completely different kind of of sales thing and you know it was just a different a different way of doing it and we 
we quickly kind of switched to the mode where we released, you know, small uh, sort of non-major updates on Android. So we we did it that way instead. You know, we tried to give our users regular small updates rather than the big bang ones cause, because it seems like on that platform you don't need the, the big bang sort of like massive updates. And so, yeah, I'd say 2012 up till, you know, 2013 is kind of when our attitude about that platform changed. And the interesting thing about 2014 is maybe 60 to 70% of all our income comes from Google Play. And that's not because the other income has disappeared. It's just because Google Play has eclipsed it. It's not just Apple who has competition. For app developers, the flood of free alternatives has also changed the landscape for how premium developers create their apps. Well, I think standing out from the crowd is important when you're, when you're thinking about what product to make at the start. Uh, you know, how do you break into an existing market? Uh, you know, it's worth asking, well, how, how are we going to be different from everyone else in this market? You know, how, why, would, why would people choose you over this, 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 or this? And when I was making Overcast, I made these giant lists and these, you know, these, all these idea drafts and these documents saying like, all right, well, here's the other apps I can find. And I, I would use them all. And I would say, all right, here's, here's where they're good. Here's where they're not so good. Here's my planned feature set. And here's like, what are my advantages over this app? What are my advantages over this other app? And, and I would go through and I would say, what, and what are my disadvantages over this app? What are my disadvantages over this other app? Um, that I think is very important to do when you're starting out. But once you're established... I feel like, I mean, and my experience with Instapaper definitely uh, would bear this out. Uh, once you're established, your your best friend and worst enemy is really yourself. Uh, you live and die based on what, what you do, not as much what your competitors do. I mean, if your competitors do something completely over-the-top, outrageously good and outrageously compelling, that matters. Uh, but that's not usually what happens. You know, usually what happens is everyone's basically doing the same set of things in different ways. And usually they're not doing something you can't do and you're not doing something they can't do. Your, your app has to continue once it's out there. Once you have a fan base, once you, know, once you have users, your app will live or die based on how well you bring it forward. Not necessarily are you going to match every little thing your competitors do. Because that usually isn't why people chose you. And who are the competitors for developers? Is it just other developers? Or does this net cast a little wider? I see my competition primarily, you know, right now I make Overcast. It's a podcast player. Uh, my primary competition in Overcast really isn't the other podcast players. It's really the fact that the vast majority of the population still doesn't listen to podcasts and doesn't realize why they should. So, like, that, like that's what I'm really fighting against. With Instapaper, it was the same thing. Where was, Instapaper had a few competitors over the years, but most of my business was dependent on the general public realizing they have this need. And, and that most of them didn't realize they had this need. And then if you explain this to them, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I, I, I do actually need that. But, you know, getting the chance to explain it to them was, was the hard part. Um, what, I, what I really want to protect against, though, is something like, like Stitcher or iHeartRadio, like some of these, like the, these really big names coming in with proprietary systems that don't use the, the default podcast ecosystem of RSS feeds and everything being pretty much, you know, working like an RSS reader, but, you know, being open and, and back-end neutral and everything. Um, there, there's enough of those out there from, with big company backing that, that keep trying to lock down the ecosystem. I see my, comp- my, my, my most important competition as preventing any of those things from getting too big because I want, I want to make sure this ecosystem stays open. 
Apple's finances are displaying that there is clearly still growth available in the App Store ecosystem. Year on year, there are always more apps in a store and more money paid out to developers. It just continues to grow. But who's it growing for? Is it growing for Candy Crush, Clash of Clans, Overcast, or Castro? Is it growing for huge game companies raking in millions of dollars a day in an app purchase for gems? Or for people trying to make a living with their podcast app? My hope is that it does continue to grow for everyone. Ideally, I would like to see there be a bigger market for independent developers, and I believe that there will be. If the market grows as a whole, it opens up more and more opportunities for everyone. But what can Apple do to help? Can they do anything to help it grow in the right direction? Um, I think the App Store itself, and by that I mean like the actual place, the, you know, the, the blue app on your phone that you tap a button and then the apps are there. I think the App Store as it is, as it exists today, could be so much better and so much more powerful at putting quality applications in front of users. Um, and I mean, this is perhaps most straightforwardly shown by search. And if you go to the search area of the App Store and you search for almost anything, you may get a couple, one or two hits towards the top that are kind of what you're looking for. And then almost certainly you'll get just a stream of not to be unkind but junk like you'll see things that haven't been updated in two or three years that are you know the third search result things that are kind of unrelated things that um are just kind of hollow clones of other of other apps that i think the the thing that apple could do most strongly to create more opportunity is to make sure that if you make something good and you make something quality, and you put it out there, that it is at least having a reasonable chance of connecting with people who are looking for something that does that is are looking for what you you built, and that it isn't being swallowed up by just this you know this stream of things that are just old and junky that kind of it feels like a lot of the app store is becoming. That's it seems indicative of an app store that isn't gearing towards making sure that there is a lot of constant opportunity to be pushing the platform forward that in many ways like those apps should just kind of be invisible and create opportunity for new people to be coming in and replacing them with things that are new and fresh and would probably give them the user a much better experience um, which is ultimately the goal like it seems in apple's interest as well as developers interest as well as in customers interests to be make sure that if you have a need that the app store can connect you with the best quality software to solve that need as quickly as possible. Next week, we're going to take a look at Apple's role as gatekeeper for the app store. Today, we've looked at the apps that are actually in the store, but I want to take a look at how they get there, who's let in, who isn't, and why. Here's some clips for what you can expect. I mean, the, the iPhone was so beautiful. <laughs> that I expected Apple to really sort of take the opportunity to um, make sure that every single app that came out for the iPhone was as beautiful as if they had crafted it themselves. You know, in the same way that I couldn't just walk into an Apple store, take, you know, bring in, bring in a box of software and just start putting it on the shelf. You know, I'd probably get arrested or something if I started doing that. <laughs> 
Inquisitive is a production of Relay FM. You can find show notes and links for this episode at relay.fm slash inquisitive slash 29. Inquisitive is produced by Stephen Hackett, Adina Niantu, and me. Marco Savage is our editorial director. Huge thanks to everyone who has provided their time and feedback to help get this series and this episode off the ground. The music you've heard in today's show was created and provided by Braywave Productions. Support for this episode comes from lynda.com and Squarespace. If you've enjoyed the show, go and check them out. You can find out more about this show and all of our shows at Relay FM by visiting relay.fm. I am Mike Hurley at imike, I-M-Y-K-E on Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.